Hello, I'm Alec Avdokov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. Welcome to another wonderful chance for you all to learn about Frederick the Great. I did not think this would last a year, and I'm amazed by all the great people I have met throughout this journey. I have also created a Twitter for this podcast if you all are interested. I keep posting on my Instagram, and I'm starting to do posts about my past episodes and giving them recaps. I challenge you to donate through listener support, and if you do so by the end of July, I will donate all of it to help aid Ukrainians caught up in this horrible struggle. So please consider donating. Also, please give me honest reviews and feedback. I'd love to hear from you all. And one more thing, shout out to Norwegian listeners. According to Apple Podcast rankings, I am in the top 100 of your country for history podcasts. So, thank you, Norway. Now, let us continue on with our great story to discuss the final breaths of King Frederick Wilhelm I. King Frederick Wilhelm had been in poor health for many a year. He had had porphyria and gout throughout his entire life, and obviously had a horrible temper. I would actually love to take this time to discuss all that King Frederick Wilhelm had done for Prussia as a kingdom. He expanded the military with incredible zeal, creating the fourth largest army in Europe by his death in 1740. Paradoxically, he gave Prussia an extended time of peace from the end of the Great Northern War to the end of his reign. He reformed the Prussian bureaucracy to be one of the most efficient in the world, he thus created the tobacco ministry, where his ministers would drink and smoke and fight and talk about hunting. If he didn't have that horrible temper of his, he would have been one of the best Prussian monarchs of all time. However, on the negative side, he was brutal to anyone who got in his way. He kidnapped tall men to put them in the military if they did not go voluntarily. He was horrible to Grundling. You remember Jakob Paul Grundling? Well... Be sure to listen to the 10th episode, which is about King Frederick Wilhelm's reign. Anyway, Grundling was essentially hazed and tortured to death. Remember, kids, hazing is serious stuff, and it's important that we stop it. Anyway, how could we forget how poor Hans Hermann von Katte was killed in front of Frederick's eyes? This was ordered by, you guessed it, his father. So yeah, harsh man. Despite all of this, one can view Frederick as a great king. He did his best to better the kingdom and help his subjects. Was he also an insanely harsh control freak who kidnapped, killed, and tortured? Absolutely. But sadly, that was par for the course back in those days. So, that was the legacy of Frederick Wilhelm I. He would close his eyes for the final time on May 31st, 1740 aged 51. Frederick Wilhelm, thinking of his subjects as one of his final projects, expanded the grain dole for his people to use in case of a famine. So that was the life of Frederick Wilhelm I. What can I say about him that hasn't already been said? He was a cruel yet brilliant man. He believed in religious tolerance for all Protestants, but despised Jews and Catholics. All I can say is duality of man. Of course, we all know what that means, right? Crown Prince Frederick 
shall henceforth be called King Frederick II in Prussia. That's right. He's still not the king of Prussia because of that land dispute we talked about way back in the sixth episode about King Frederick I in Prussia. Man, I'm on fire plugging my own stuff. Anyway, because Poland would have rejected Prussia becoming a kingdom, the compromise back in 1701 was to call Frederick I the king in Prussia. Very complicated stuff, but such is the life of a ruler within the Holy Roman Empire. Our man Frederick II became king immediately after his father's death on May 31st, 1740. Thanks to his father and his brilliant frugality with his finances, King Frederick was a very rich man. Frederick in 1740 had a war chest of roughly 8.7 million dollars and the most efficient tax system on the planet. This money was readily available to do whatever he wanted. Honestly, he could have been like one of those rich trust fund babies that are given everything in life and leave the world with no respect. But this is King Frederick the Great we are talking about. So he began with a frenzy of work as well as pleasure. One of his greatest pleasures in life was, of course, music. Because he took over from his father, the state of music in Prussia was absolutely dismal. According to Tim Blanning's biography of Frederick the Great, quote, the poverty of the musical establishment he inherited was painfully advertised when soloists had to be borrowed from the Saxon court to perform the oratorio written for Frederick Wilhelm I's funeral, end quote. So, as you can see, Prussia is still that poor kingdom that is on par with the electors of Saxony and Bavaria, and nothing would ever come from there thought all of Europe at the time. However, when Frederick was still living in Rheinsberg, he sent his architect to Dresden in Saxony in 1732, and then on to Italy from 1736 through 1737 in order to study the designs of opera houses. When Frederick came to the throne, one of his first projects was to create Berlin's first opera house. Frederick's father would have been rolling in his grave because of this. Keep in mind that Frederick Wilhelm's political testament said, quote, Neither must my dear successor allow any comedies, operas, ballets, masks to be held within his Lansom provinces. He must abhor them because they are godless and devilish things, whereby Satan, his temple, and kingdom are increased. Now Frederick is finally getting some revenge on his dead father. Good for you. However, what good is music if you don't have anyone to share and philosophize about it? The main man I will be talking about now is Count Francesco Algarotti, or more simply, Algarotti. Algarotti was born in 1712, the same year as Frederick, and was the son of a wealthy Venetian merchant. His breakthrough publication was titled Newtonianism for Ladies, a piece of literature that does not sound sexist in the slightest. <clears throat> yes, it does. Algarotti met the famous Voltaire after publishing his work and got on well with him. He then moved on to London, where he had a very, uh, how shall I put this, scandalous relationship with the English lord and lady. One of the letters that were sent to Algarotti from a Lord Hervey writes, quote, 
I love you with all my heart and beg you never to forget the affection I have for you, nor let the affection you have expressed grow weaker. Could you imagine if we texted that way? In such a whimsical manner that the language of the God drizzles down to our mortal tongues. Instead, it's LOL and K. I'll leave it to you whether this frankness is a good or bad thing for society. Anyway, the same year that letter was sent, 1739, was when Algarotti first met Frederick in Rheinsberg. It was apparently love at first sight when the two men met. Algarotti even wrote a letter to Voltaire in which he calls Frederick, quote, an adorable prince. Frederick was also head over heels in love when he called Algarotti the, quote, swan of Padua. Padua is a city in Italy, by the way. Well, anyway, Frederick Wilhelm would die a year later in 1740, and Frederick was overjoyed that he could have his lover in Berlin, if he were to persuade Algarotti. In a letter to London, Frederick shows off his writing prose when he composed a poem in the postscript of a letter, in which he writes, quote, Come, Algarotti, from the banks of the Thames, share with us our happy destiny. Hasten to reach this pleasant place, where you will find liberty is our watchword. This is to let you know that four days ago, Frederick II succeeded Frederick Wilhelm. All his people with us feel no joy. He alone, as a loving son, is prey to grief. Caring little for the attractions of such flattering destiny, he deserves to be loved and reign over your heart. Algarotti was taken in by this letter and wrote back to Frederick that the letter he had sent was, quote, the most beautiful letter ever written. So obviously, Algarotti then travels to Berlin and they ride off into the sunset to Frederick's coronation. Remember Frederick's grandfather, also named Frederick, had a coronation that cost the kingdom six million dollars and needed 30,000 horses and 1,800 carriages to transport the royal procession to the city of Königsberg. While Frederick II only needed three carriages and made the whole coronation thing very low-key. Algarotti rode in the same carriage with Frederick. Frederick's wife, you know, the one who Frederick vowed to have and to hold, was nowhere to be seen. After his father died, Frederick treated his wife with utter disdain and acted as if Elizabeth Christina did not exist. Algarotti and Frederick were carrying on like lovers and even went on a trip to what is today the Netherlands in the Duchy of Cleve. They were on their way to meet Voltaire. Also, if it seems like I gave Voltaire no introduction, that's because he will receive a few special episodes of his own because his role in the life and times of Frederick the Great is absolutely crucial. Anyway, a trip to the Duchy of Cleve. Algarotti and Frederick, according to David Fraser's book, went on a secret trip to Strasbourg in France. Frederick's secret identity was Comte du Four, and Algarotti's was Comte von Fuhl. There was apparently an incident where a man asked where Algarotti was from, and Frederick said abruptly that he was an, quote, Italian from Italy. This nearly started a brawl, 
due to Frederick's perceived rudeness. But then champagne was ordered and yada, yada, yada. You know what happens with people with too much champagne. Frederick and Algarotti were then met with Voltaire for the first time in the Chateau de Molan. And there is some evidence that becoming king did not change Frederick that much. According to Roger Pearson's biography of Voltaire, it was nighttime when Frederick first met Voltaire and Frederick had the flu. Voltaire wrote about this experience when he says, quote, In a small room lit by a single candle, I saw a modest-sized bed some two and a half feet wide, and on it a little man wrapped in a thick blue dressing gown. It was the king, sweating and shivering beneath a scruffy blanket and running a very high temperature. The king would then rise to meet Voltaire, despite his sickness. Truly, Frederick was the neo-Stoic that he wrote about in the Anti-Machiavel. I will get into more details of the relationship between Frederick and Voltaire in a future episode, but now we will discuss the final section of today's episode, the geopolitics that would directly affect what Frederick will do in his first year on the throne. Now, on to foreign affairs. Europe at the time was a bit like Jenga after you've taken about 10 or so pieces off the block. Each player knows that the tower is going to fall sometime, but nobody knows what block is going to make the tower fall and how the tower will fall. This block that is about to be pulled from the shaky Jenga Tower of Europe is going to be Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI. If you remember back to episode 14 about the pragmatic sanction, the major issue of the Habsburgs was who would take over after Charles VI died. The pragmatic sanction was a legal document that stated that a female, specifically Charles's daughter, Maria Theresa, could take the throne of the Holy Roman Empire after Charles VI died. Ever since 1713, when the document was signed, Charles had been working his tail off to try to convince Europe that a female could rule the, rule the possessions of the Habsburgs. France had become a signatory of the pragmatic sanction after the War of Polish Succession, and Prussia was a signatory after the Habsburgs promised the duchies of Ulich and Berg on the Rhine. However, Austria went back on its word in 1738 when the rulers of Ulich and Berg died, and Austria did not back Prussia's claim. But let's keep focus on the Habsburgs. The War of Polish Succession was an indecisive disaster for the Habsburgs, and then they went to war with the Turks again in 1737, through 1739. In this latter war, Austria lost Belgrade to the Turks. The finances and military of the Habsburgs were on the brink of utter ruin. One of Charles's confidants later said that the reign of Charles had been full of, quote, topor, indestruction, and mutual recrimination. And then a most unexpected thing occurred. On October 20th, 1740, at the age of 55, Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI died of food poisoning. So, one of the most crucial deaths of the century happened to be one of the funniest ways a person can pass away. His room must have smelled bad, if you know what I mean. But what does this mean geopolitically? Well, Charles had no male heir. Therefore, the possessions of the Habsburg would go to Maria Theresa, Charles's daughter. However, Remember back to the very first episode when I said that the title of the Holy Roman Emperor was elected. 
Well, this means that Maria Theresa would not automatically take the throne. There would be an election for who would be the Holy Roman Emperor. Frederick, now Frederick II, on November 5th, 1740, wrote to his chief diplomat in Vienna, the capital of Austria, a scathing expose 10 days after he heard about the rise of Maria Theresa to the throne. Frederick wrote, quote, The emperor is dead. The Holy Roman Empire and the House of Austria are leaderless. The monarchy's finances are exhausted. The army is ruined, and the provinces are drained by war, plague, famine, and the terrible burden of taxation they have to bear up to the present. In short, Frederick, as the shark, could smell blood in the water. He knew there were also competing demands on Austria from France, Bavaria, Saxony, which also ruled over Poland, Spain, and Sardinia. If Saxony were to, say, invade the neighboring Habsburg province of Silesia, they could connect the territories of Poland and Saxony and block Prussia from southern expansion. Austria had two allies, which were Britain, which was currently distracted by a war with Spain, and Russia, which was being threatened by Sweden and the Turks. This war between Britain and Spain was the infamous War of Jenkins' Ear. I'll do a poll on my Instagram to see if I will do a special episode about it. Anyway, Austria seemed not to have a chance to succeed in a war in Frederick's mind if it were to come to that. The state of Austria's alliances finances, and military were all ruinous. I heard an analogy where the Habsburg Empire is compared to a castle where there is the largest treasure in the world full of jewels, diamonds, and gold. However, the castle is guarded by 10 guards and the castle gate doors are wide open. So the gears in Frederick's mind began turning, which is a dangerous pastime according to Beauty and the Beast. Frederick began to plan something that would change the course of European history for the next half a century. What will happen next? With that, I believe I shall have to leave you there. The eyes of Europe are looking at the young philosopher King Frederick to see what will be his next move. Find out next week what move Frederick will make. I believe I will conclude this suspenseful episode by saying a plus tard. See you later.